We're in Genesis chapter 17. Before I get into the text, I want you to stop and think about God. Just in your head, think about God. Ponder, meditate who God is, what he is, how he moves, acts, directs. Got it? That is a box. And that's your God box. And we all have them. Just like Abram. And just like Abram, our God boxes are all very much too small. And very often, very wrong. And God, God is a box destroyer. He is a box crusher. And we should praise him for being that. So it's been 24 years in the life of Abram since that general call and promise of that covenant. 13 years from the revelation that it was actually going to be coming from Abraham himself. That covenant would be fulfilled through him and not through Lot. That understanding that it was becoming from him and not through Lot was the catalyst for the, all those events that were told to us in chapter 16 in the birth of Ishmael. And 13 years of Abram and Sarai believing the promises of God, believing that the promises that he had made would be fulfilled, believing that they would be fulfilled in Ishmael. Verses 1 and 2. When Abram was 99 years old, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. The box crusher has arrived on the scene. And verses 1 and 2 are the central verses from our text from today. They are the reason that the rest of today's verses work. They are the how of the rest of the verses from today. In verse 1, we're told how old Abram was. And then in verse 1, we're told of the impossibility of making covenant with God. The impossibility wasn't in the fact that Abram was 99 years old. His age is not the impossibility. The impossibility that we're supposed to see is found in the revelation of who God is. And then what is required, what is required to make covenant with him? I am God Almighty. And here, God doesn't reveal himself as Yahweh. Here, for the first time, God reveals himself as El Shaddai. Like I said, this is the first time that this is used in this manner in the book of Genesis. El Shaddai, God Almighty, the God that is creator and the God over every created thing. 
And it's used here to illustrate that God is not only Elohim, the God who creates, the God who compels that which is not to become that which is, Yahweh. But he's also the God who commands nature to do what is contrary to itself and subdues nature to bow to his ministry of grace. Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of salvation, possessing the power to realize his promises, even when in the natural order of life, they are physically impossible. But he's also El Shaddai, bringing his will to reality, even when the powers of nature are insufficient to secure the promise of his reality. And that term El Shaddai, God Almighty, this is the same manner and term used throughout the book of Job when God is spoken of there, which is significant. Read Job. Seriously, read it. From chapter 1 all the way to chapter 42. And in there you will see this El Shaddai, this box destroyer, destroy every box that his servant Job has made for him. And when you do that, you'll get to, when you finally get to the end of that, you'll understand why it is the grace of God that he destroys our boxes, why he must crush them. He must crush them in order for us to better commune with him. And this is the manner in which God reveals himself to Abram now. And then he gives the requirement to covenant with this God. He tells him, walk before me and be blameless. Now, that command to walk before God, that's not new to us in the book of Genesis. It's been witnessed before. First in Adam, he walked in the cool of the day with God. And then in the life of Enoch in Genesis 5.24. And this is the same thing that is told to us of Noah in Genesis 6.9. But what does God mean to, that Abram was to walk before him and be blameless? What does, what does that look like? Where, where do we get the tools to be able to do that? Well, the answer to this, what God is telling Abram when he says to walk before me, can be understood in this realm, this earthly realm, by thinking about a courtroom. Because when a person is told that they must present themselves before a judge in a courtroom, that you must go and stand before a judge, no matter what you think of that judge or the case that is being presented, when you enter that courtroom and stand before that judge, you do so in respect and honor. You fear that man or that woman that is sitting in that chair who has the power over your day-to-day -day life at that moment. But that's not how we're told to think of God in our modern evangelicalism. I mean, God is our loving Father, the, the Father that will hold us fast, the Father that picks you up when you skin your knees, the Father that gives you that brand new Tesla on your 16th birthday, that gives you the desires of your heart like a nose job or a live-in boyfriend or the freedom to sow your wild oats, the Father that loves you no matter what and knows. Girls just want to have fun. But in, if, in your fun, you drive drunk, 
get arrested and are forced to stand before the judge, even if that judge is your father, a good and just judge must never allow his love for his children to override the duty to judge rightly. And at that moment, how you see your father when you stand before him, guilty as charged, knowing that your father is a just and right judge. That is how you are to walk before the judge. Stand before the judge. And so too, and even in a greater way, God is telling Abram that because he is El Shaddai, Abram must walk in fear and respect of the one who is not just judge over our temporal life, but he is the judge over our eternal life. And this is what that first part of the command by God to Abram means when he says, walk before me. And you're thinking, are you sure, David? Are you, are you sure that this is what this means when El Shaddai tells Abram that he is to walk before him? After all, this God was the one who came to Abram. Abram didn't go looking for God. He didn't ask to be chosen as the father of many nations. So shouldn't Abram then have the been given the ability to decide how he was going to walk before God? Obviously, God needed him. Shouldn't he have been able to decide what he was going to give in return to God? Well, logically, that seems to be right when humans are sovereign. Because this is how we deal with each other. But this is not so when dealing with God. This El Shaddai is Yahweh, the creator and the sustainer of all things. And he is the I am that is sovereign over all things. So what does he mean when he tells Abram, walk before me and be blameless? Well, the wisest man who ever lived, he summed up the meaning of life in this way. In Ecclesiastes 12, 13, he said, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And he's the same man who, book, who, who penned this book of Proverbs. And in it, it tells us the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. But fools despise wisdom and instruction, Proverbs 1, 7. And God told Solomon, walk before me as your father David did. David, David was a man who understood what it meant to walk before God. He spoke of what it meant to walk before God very often. Listen to David's heart for God as told to us in Psalm 116. He said, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death, they encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I suffered distress and anguish. And then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O oh my soul, to your rest, 
for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. And so I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, in my alarm, all mankind are liars. So what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in presence of, of his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your slave. I am your slave, the son of your maidservant. You have loosened my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. And this man, David, who walked before God in the land of the living, he commended us in 14 of his psalms, that to walk before God is to fear him. Such as in Psalm 34, where he says, Come, you children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of Yahweh. Verse 11. And very pertinent to today's scripture is Psalm 25, verse 14. The secret of Yahweh is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. I'm going to reference that verse again later, so hang on to it, as well as Acts 13.22, where we read, And when he had removed him, that's God talking, or them talking about God removing King Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. You're thinking, but, okay, but what about this Job? I mean, God revealed himself as El Shaddai to Job. But what about Job, the man who is said to be blameless? How did he understand what, what walking before God meant? Well, after encountering God in chapter 42, this is what Job had to say. He said, I had heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now, after God has destroyed his God box, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes, Job 42, 5 and 6. And perhaps now you're beginning to see, beginning to understand what it is what, that God is telling Abram when he says, walk before me. But let's think on a couple more verses in the hopes that we can better understand what this means, what it means to walk before God. That prophet Isaiah he understood what it meant to walk before the Lord. The first five, if you read the book of Isaiah, the first five chapters of the book of Isaiah chronicled the apostasy of the people of Israel, how they walked before God, and even what they thought of God. And then the call of Isaiah, that prophet, is found in chapter 6, where we read, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, 
holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. At the house, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Verses 1 through 5. And this is how the prophet of God, how he reacted to seeing the God, the very same God that is now standing, talking to Abram. This is an important thing to hang on to, to remember as we go through this chapter. How did this man, Isaiah, what did he think that it meant to walk before God? In the 8th chapter of the book of Isaiah, we hear him tell the people of Israel, But Yahweh of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread, verse 13. What he says is to walk before God is to honor him as holy. And that we should not only let him be our fear and our dread, but that meaning there when he says let, what he means is make him. Know him in such a way that he is our fear and our dread. And and then he said in chapter 33, verse 6, He will be the stability of your times, the wealth of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. And there the prophet is admonishing the people of God to turn to God. And he begins by saying that God will be their stability at all times. And that seems like a great benefit in trusting in God. It sounds a lot like the God that we have been introduced to in America. But then he added that God would be a wealth of salvation. Again, that sounds right in our ears. And not only salvation, but knowledge lines up. We know and believe that there's a great benefit in being a Christian. That there is a great wealth and treasure in God. And both of those things line up with how we think of God, the box that we have for him. But then the prophet Isaiah ends that thought, those blessings of God, with the summation, the summation of all the benefits of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. Like David, like Job, like Solomon, Isaiah says that the fear of the Lord is his treasure. That this is his treasure. But this is not how we've been taught concerning the Lord. This is not what is taught to us in America. At the same time, though, we must acknowledge that words can have different meanings, especially English words, which can make for some interesting conversations at times. But what are we supposed to think, though? How are we supposed to understand what the fear of the Lord is supposed to mean? Well, John Calvin, in his commentary on this section of Scripture, on this issue, understood this. He said, Now the pious, while they fear God, are by no means horror-struck at his presence, like the reprobates. But trembling at his judgment, they walk circumspectly before him. 
In other words, how we live, that is how we fear God. And there it is again, this time outside of the Bible, that walking before God. And then at the beginning of verse 3, we see Abram walking before God, how that happened. Look at verse 3. Then Abram fell on his face. And then after this, we hear God once again speak of the promise that he made to Abram so many years before, the one that has not changed and it has not been altered or affected by the sin or doubt of Abram. The promise that Abram was forced to believe by faith and the one that although Abram may have thought has already been fulfilled was now about to be clarified by the father or for the father of faith. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I, I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. And did you notice how God speaks here? He speaks in the past tense. I have made you, not I am making you, or even I will make you. And I've said last week, that if we ever desire to understand Romans 4 and how it speaks of the faith of Abraham, you have to read that alongside of this account of Abraham as given to us in the book of Genesis. Because in Romans 4.16, we're told that's why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also those who share in the faith of Abraham, who is the father of faith. And then verse 17 of Romans 4, And it is as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. And there it is again, that past tense. Paul picks that up, understood. Paul knew that what the Old Testament said. And because of the Spirit of God working in him, he could understand what El Shaddai was saying to Abram here. That God was speaking future reality into Abram's present reality. The one that didn't line up with what was being said. And Paul goes on, In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead, and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And this is what is meant when God speaks past tense concerning future things for Abram. And then listen to the absolute sureness that God speaks this future reality to Abram. Genesis 17, verses 6 through 8. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you, and I will give you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Again, not that you will become a mighty nation, Abram. I will make you. I will establish. I will give to you. Absolutely none of this is dependent on what Abraham does. 
what he chooses or how good he is. And this is such a reality that beginning in verse 9, God no longer even speaks to Abram, which means exalted father. He now speaks to Abraham, father of a multitude. We need to understand that God is sovereign over men, all men. He created us. He is Lord over us. And we are supposed to take comfort in this, as Job did, as David did. A man who, like, uh, like Abram, understood this concept. David said in Psalm 139, verse 16, Speaking of the sovereignty of God over all men, he said, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them. Think about this. This is what David said. This is the reality of God. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God is sovereign over us. And then beginning in verse 9, Abram is now told what that he does, that he actually does get to play a part in this covenant with God. But not until after God makes it crystal clear that the covenant is not on Abram's terms. This is not a partnership with Abraham. That Abraham gets, he does not get to decide who is in or out of this covenant or even what he's going to do or not. Verses 9 through 14, And God said to Abram, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. And this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born into your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. And so shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And again, did you notice all the personal nouns there? How God was very adamant that he made it known that this was his covenant. This was not a partnership, even though he was making it with this man and his dependents. It was his. And then God clarifies his covenant even more, beginning in verse 15. And God said to Abram, Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. And I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. What God is saying here is that thing that both Abram and Sarai knew as impossible. That was the very thing that God was promising here. They, they would have a son. 
that the covenant promise was not just through the father of the faith, but also through the mother of the faith as well. We have to think about this, that it's been over 25 years, 25 years since Abram was called to walk with God, been promised a land that he had been just a visitor in for these 25 years, promised a people that he did not yet have, but he believed God, but he didn't believe him perfectly, but he couldn't since he didn't know God perfectly. He's a sinner, just like you. And he didn't know him completely either because God had not yet revealed the how of his promise to Abraham. But Abram believed God, and he, God, he counted that as righteousness to Abraham. Which brings us to verse 17. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? But don't assume that the laughter of Abraham was one of cynical unbelief, that it was done in unbelief, such as the doubting of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. It's more akin to that questioning of Mary when she was at, when she asked in wonder, how? How can I, a virgin, how can I become the physical mother of the physical incarnation of God? And then in faith, and in confusion, and in trust, we are given the response of the father of faith concerning this. We are shown the box that he had built to contain the promise of God, and even God himself in his life. Verse 18, And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. He says, God, you're amazing in saying that Sarah will conceive and bear me a son. But that's, that's impossible. I, I'm just content with the son that you've already given me, already provided. How you've already fulfilled the promise to me. That good, that's good enough. I mean, that's fine. And then hear the box crusher. Verse 19. God said, no. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. And he shall become the father of 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, who Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. And when he had finished talking with God, God went up from Abraham. Okay, I want to stop again and think about this. Who was it that was talking to Abraham? Remember that thing I told you before, it's important that we hang on to you? how Abraham was supposed to walk before God and be blameless in his sight. So who was it that, God, that Abraham was talking to? God, right? But who was it? It couldn't be the father. 
And it couldn't be the Spirit since these are not able to be able to see. So who was it? It could only be Jesus. It was Jesus who was giving this man the covenant sign to keep, who had made the covenant promise to him. And he made it clear that obedience and submitting to uh, circumcision, that was not keeping the covenant of God. That was merely submitting to the sign of the covenant that is being given it here. And the promise of the covenant that God made with Abraham and his descendants, it came with a sign. And that sign was given in the flesh, given to make men understand that it is in their flesh that they need reconciliation, a sign that corresponds with the earthly reality of the covenant of a people and a land that God is making, um, that God is promising here. And it's not without irony that the God who is commanding Abraham to obey him, to take the sign of his covenant in his flesh, that that same God would submit to this sign himself when he steps out of eternity into the earthly realm and takes on flesh. At that time when he, Jesus, submitted to the will of the Father and took on flesh, he submitted to the sign of this covenant as well. And he did so in order to bring about the fulfillment of that eternal covenant that was made before the foundation of the world, as told to us in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21, which is the new covenant, that all the old covenants point to and are fulfilled in Christ. And the covenants, all the covenants like this one, all come with a sign, even the new covenant. It does? Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And here's the sign. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Baptism is not keeping the new covenant any more than circumcision was keeping this covenant with, that was being made with Abraham. They're merely signs. But these are signs of these covenants. And just like the old covenant is not the same as the new covenant, and just like the old covenant was of the temporal realm and to a specific ethnic people, the new covenant is different. It's spiritual. And it's not to an ethnic people. It's to an elect, chosen people. And just as these covenants are different, so too are the signs of the covenants. The covenant made to, that we're talking about today is being made with a man and his physical descendants. All of them, think about this, all of them, which included Ishmael, who is not the son of promise. The covenant of redemption is to the son of man, from the son of man, and even through the son of man. And the sign of baptism is different than this sign, in that it's only for those that are part of the eternal spiritual son of man, those who are of the family of God. And we see this truth told to us in Colossians chapter 2. Grab your Bibles and turn with me there. 
I'm going to start at verse 6, which begins with that word, therefore. And as you know, anytime you hear that word or read that word, therefore, you're required to go back to see what it's there for. In this instance, Paul is encouraging the members of that church in Colossae to remember the struggles that he has faced in the past for them in order that they would not be swayed with plausible arguments over Jewish customs, but as he said, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches and full assurance and understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, verses 2 and 3. And that, verses 2 and 3, that should sound familiar in your ears from today, because earlier I read Isaiah chapter 33, verse 6, and he will be the stability of your times, the wealth of salvation and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. Christ is the treasure of God. Christ is the fear of the Lord in which we are to walk, in which we do walk. And verse 6 of Colossians starts with this. As you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. So how did you receive Christ? No, really, how did you receive him? By faith, right? That's how Paul is telling us to walk in him, as we walk in him. And he develops this, so walk in him, beginning in verse 7. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Again, rooted, meaning that the very lifeblood, your very lifeblood comes from him. He is the essence of who you are now as a person. That even precedes faith. Our salvation, our walk, our eternal assurance of salvation, all of these things are rooted in God. And then Paul goes on to warn against religious traditions and human logic. Verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. And he tells us why we should make sure that we do not allow ourselves to get sidetracked. In verse 9, he says, For in him, speaking of Christ still, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And then he tells us what being rooted in him means. Verse 10, And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. And then Paul gets to the root of the issue at hand at that point. How these saints were being derailed. How they were being sidetracked. They were being told that to be saved, they had to submit to circumcision. That as good as baptism was, as good as the new covenant is, without the sign of the old covenant, it's still lacking. In verse 11, he says, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Again, it's not without irony that the one who gave that sign of this covenant that we're reading in Genesis 17 to Abram was now the one in whom those who are in the new covenant are circumcised in. And then in verse 12, we are told how we are circumcised in him. 
having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the power or the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And it's verses such as these, which is the reason that why we hold that baptism should be performed by full immersion, since that's how a body is buried. You don't just body or bury the head of a dead body. You bury the whole body, and that's how it's raised as well. And verses like verses 13 and 14 are why we hold that baptism is for those who have made a credible profession of faith alone. Verses 13 and 14 of Colossians. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. What Paul is saying here is that no matter how much God loves humans, what he's saying is he cannot be unjust and not uphold his righteousness. His love is the same as his justice and his righteousness and even as his wrath. Which is why he says this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. What he is saying is that you were dead. And no matter if you were a Jew or a Gentile, if you've been circumcised in your flesh or not, no matter if you were descendant of Abraham or not, you were dead in your trespasses. And it was only God that can make us alive. We didn't make the choice to accept life or not. We were dead. And dead men do not choose anything. And in the same thought and understanding, we don't baptize dead people either. Because there's no spiritual benefit to it. Once a person is dead, everybody knows they're dead. And no amount of water is going to change their deadness. Or even affect their spiritual life either. And this applies to those who are spiritually dead as well no matter what the age is. And this is why we will always assure, ensure, that any person that comes forward for baptism, that they know what they are doing, that they understand the gospel, that they're not just a zombie, a dead person mimicking or being coerced into something that will have zero benefit for them. Back to Genesis 17 and the end of our text from today. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house were brought with his money, every male among them, the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskin that very day, as God had said to him. Abram was 99 years old when he circumcised the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abram and his son Ishmael was circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. So we're once again reminded, for the second time in this chapter, that Abram was 99 years old. And no matter how spry he was, he was still old. But it was at this age and in this state that those Romans chapter 4 verses speak of him. Listen to verses 9 through 12 of Romans 4. 
For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It wasn't after, but it was before he was circumcised. Those are verses 9 and 10. And just like with baptism, in the new covenant, it is made apparent that his faith, which is what God counted to him as righteousness, preceded the sign of the covenant. Verses 11 and 12. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of, who, of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was the faith that he had, even though he had been muddle-headed at times about the how that God was going to fulfill his promise, even though he built imperfect boxes for God. This man, Abraham, never doubted that God would fulfill his promise, which brings us to the application of that sign that was given of the covenant that was being made with Abraham. Now, not to be crude, but there is a reason that they circumcise babies and not adults. It hurts. A lot. And for a long time. So much so that this was the means that two of the sons of, of Israel rendered an entire city helpless before them. That account is told to us in Genesis 34, when after one of the men from that city rapes their sister Dinah, the sons of Abraham concoct a plan of revenge, and they convict, convince all the men of that city <clears throat> that if they will get circumcised, they will enter a covenant into, with them. And these two men, after they do that, on the third day, go in, and they kill every single man in that city. That's how much it hurts. And here, an old man convinces his entire household of men to submit themselves to the knife. All 318 of his highly trained fighting men and his 13-year-old son. And he did it on that very day. No thinking about it. No weighing his options. No procrastination. No, hey, I've got this thing. I'm throwing it out here to you. You guys think about it. We'll decide next couple days whether or not we're going to do this or not. He was commanded and he did. And this is what obedience is. Because delayed obedience is not obedience. That's compliance. And Abraham wasn't compliant. He was obedient. And we think, Abram, Abraham, he was the man. We hear sermons uh, based off of here, and we're told, you need to be like Abraham. Let me give you an outline from this chapter on how you can become as faithful as Abraham was, as saintly as that man Abraham was. For many, this is the point of this chapter. Abraham was the man. Be like Abraham. And now let me give you some fleshly, practical pointers from his life on how to be like him. Because Abraham was faithful, and he was the father of faith. 
But where did he get that faith? Did he work it up? I mean, did he exercise his faith muscles daily in order that he could have hard, rock-solid faith abs? Isn't this the storyline that we've been told for so long? Be like Abraham, the Arnold Schwarzenegger of faith. But Abraham was not faithful in himself. He was faithful in God because of God. Nothing in his life pointed to him having the ability or even the desire to seek after and obey God. He was an idolater when God, when God called him from in Haran. And it was in the calling by God, in that calling by God, that Abraham was given the ability to hear God, given the ability to love God, given the ability to obey God. And verse 1 is the reason that Abraham obeyed on the very day that God commanded him. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Abraham saw Christ. He had a direct revelation by God of who God is. And it was because of this that he obeyed. It was because of this that the stipulations that were made by God to him to walk before him and be blameless in order that this covenant could be established with this man. It was because he saw Christ. Because of who God is. That is the only way that he could be blameless and walk before God. The only way that they could be fulfilled. And by faith, Abraham submitted to circumcision because he had a direct revelation of the God who fulfilled the old covenant with the new. And this is the only way that any person can obey God. We are no different than Abraham. If you are a saint, then God has made himself known to you. And he's made the reality of who you are outside of him. He's made that known to you as well. I am the Lord Almighty. You, sinner, you walk before me and be blameless. And you know, I can't. But then you see the holes in his hands. You see the hole in his sides. You hear of the rest of what he is saying to you. I've made a covenant with you. A covenant that has redeemed you. That has purchased you from your slavery of sin. And reconciled you to me. By my shed blood. And you believe this. You believe the promises made. And you know that this is reality even though you cannot tangibly touch them. And just like Abraham, by faith, you have to receive the sign of this new covenant. And everyone that hears this call, they will come. And all those who come will be forced to walk in faith, just like Abraham did. Saints, 
never be enamored by men in the Bible or outside of it. Any saint throughout human history is no different than you. Maybe they've been given some better gifts, some greater gifts, a larger set of tools in which they perform the tasks that they have been commanded to fulfill. But they serve the same God as you, the same one that has made the same covenant with you. And they have, every single one of them, all been given the same command as you. Obey. And because they have been given that command by El Shaddai, they will obey. You will obey. Never perfectly. But in faith, by faith, you obey. This is what that verse that I said to hang on to, that Psalm 25, verse 14, that the secret of Yahweh is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. He has shown you not only his covenant, but he's also shown you the treasure that is that covenant. And do you remember that Acts 13, 22 verse? And when he had removed him, God removing Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found a David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Think, your mind thinks of this life of David, and you're like, how can that be? How could he say that? But because he has given you a new heart, shown you his covenant and his treasure, because you are now in him, you, like David, you will do all his will in your life. You will. Abraham changed his name on that day. And he changed the name of Sarah on that day. And he submitted to the sign of that covenant on that day. But it's not going to be for another year before he actually sees or knows that the promise that God is making now in the son Isaac is going to be fulfilled. Since he was forced to walk by faith. And Abraham will never would never receive the inheritance of that land that he traveled his whole life as a foreigner in. He lived his entire life by faith, in faith. And we think of the new covenant. Isn't this the same for us? We are required to do the same thing. But saints, on that great getting up day, that day when we are finally ushered into eternity, on that day we will shed these eyes of faith. And the great box crusher will finally crush the last box that we have made for him. And we will realize that which we've already been given in Christ 
what he has promised to us now, just like he promised Abram then. But until that day, saints, keep your eyes on the author and finisher of your faith. Keep yourself in the love of God. Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. And saints, at the same time, don't doubt that you're going to do that. Know with absolute assuredness that you will do that. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What an amazing God we are given. Let's pray.